This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Eric Hulkerin, and it's time for another episode of Behind the Headlines. On this episode, we talk to Julie Mack. You know, I was actually trying yesterday to think of a corollary to this. And my honestly, my guess is, is this is a lot like England, maybe during World War II, um, or a place where there just is a fundamental disruption in routine, and parents are really agonizing about what, how to handle that. And Martin Slochter. I just uh, did a piece that uh, we should be publishing in the near future where I talked to a couple dozen students about it. And all, every single one of them hates virtual. Both of whom are on the front lines of education and COVID-19 in the state of Michigan. If you are a parent or interested in what's going on in schooling in Michigan as it relates to the global pandemic, we hope you get a lot of information out of this episode. So let's get on with it. We are going to be talking about education in the state of Michigan during a global pandemic. My co-host, as always, Vice President of Content, John Heiner. John, as a parent, I'm super excited about, well, I don't know that I'm excited about today, but I'm interested in the topic today. So welcome, my friend. It is good to be here, Eric. And listeners of our show know that every week you ask how I'm doing. And every week since we've been on, I've somehow make it related to how fast summer's going by, correct? Yes. Okay, I'm, I'm extremely sensitive about that, obviously. <laughs> but interestingly, uh, for the first time uh, probably in almost 30 years, I do not have a child who's getting ready to go back to K-12 schools. Um, I have a daughter who's getting ready to go virtually to college, which is a whole other uh, you know, ball of wax. But um all the issues that have been sprouting related to the reopening of schools, and some already have, uh, some have not yet. Uh, some have not even made a decision, which is just, it's just mind boggling how many uh, constituents are in this discussion around the state. Uh, not just the state, we start with the president, Betsy DeVos, all the way down to local school, school superintendents, and even parents who've been you know, given the, the right to make a decision about where their ch child's going to go or how they're going to learn this fall. And it's extremely complex. Um, it's dynamic. And no matter, or you know, depending on where you live, it's changing every day. Uh, people are still waiting for decisions in a, in a lot of places. So before we kick into this and uh, get to our guests, I do want to point out for our listeners that today MLive has launched a new newsletter. It'll be a weekly newsletter. It's going to have our latest stories and our best reporting on all these issues related to K-12 education and the decisions not only that school districts in the state are making, but decisions parents have to make every day. And we're hoping to guide people through that. And the newsletter is called Michigan Schools Education in the COVID Era, which is, you know, just a really sad title, <laughs> but <laughs> yes. just really indicative of, of our lives, you know, um, I everything. Wait. I can't wait for the bumper stickers for that. Like, you know. You know, hey, your Caribbean cruise in the COVID era. <laughs> yes, in the, in the COVID era. <laughs> but um, this newsletter is going to be really helpful for people to, A, be on top of what's going on around the state and, and probably in their local districts, depending on where you live, given where, where our news offices are. 
uh, all the state policy decisions, but also we're going to go uh, profile parents and families that are having to make these really difficult decisions. And so if you'd like to sign up for this newsletter, go to MLive. And right now, any story that you see related to education or education and COVID is going to have a link for you to be able to sign up for this newsletter. Um, it's going to be the, the latest and best information that you can get on this and it'll come right to your email inbox. So just a little plug there for our, our, our new newsletter, um, Michigan Schools Education in the COVID Era. And with that, and without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guests today who uh, are really on the front lines of the story. First, we have Julie Mack, who is a reporter on our statewide team. And Julie has covered education. I, Julie, I don't want to like out you, but I think decades. Um, and you're an expert on a lot of issues related to schools in Michigan, um, everything from funding to charter schools. But uh, this this is new ground, obviously. And then Martin Slochter, who is an educator education reporter for us in, in the Ann Arbor News Office. Uh, welcome, Julie and Martin. I appreciate you joining us here today. Good morning. Morning. Glad to be here. And just high level, Julie, I'm just going to throw the biggest softball ever. Uh, I think I know the answer, but I, I cited your experience covering education. But have you have you ever seen anything like this, especially this close to the school year and decisions that have to be made? Absolutely not. And, you know, I was actually trying yesterday to think of a corollary to this. And my, honestly, my guess is, is this is a lot like England, maybe during World War II, um, or a place where there just is a fundamental disruption in routine, and parents are really agonizing about what, how to handle that. So, and we didn't have that kind of disruption here. So I don't even know that there's even a corollary in the United states to what's happening now we have seen already in michigan several school districts ann arbor lansing kalamazoo who have made decisions to go to an online or virtual only education for the fall and then we have other districts like where i live in Celine that have not even made the decision yet uh, they have been sending information almost weekly on you know, uh, the decision-making process, safety things that they'll do. I do know that uh, some of the sports teams are practicing, again, uh, even as the Big Ten and some, you know, all major sports are considering whether or not to go forward with fall sports. But, uh, Marty, you cover public education in Ann Arbor, which has already made a decision. But what goes into all of these, uh, what are all the factors that go into these decisions and all the parties who are involved in these kind of decisions? Yeah, I think most districts will, will say that first and foremost, they're trying to create plans that are um, keeping uh, students, uh, staff and parents safe. And, and that's at the forefront of their plans. Um, a lot of the, the districts that have opted to go uh, start the year virtually have, have really stressed that and um, would, would want to see uh, a 14 day, or you kind of hear that number being thrown around, decrease in COVID cases uh, before they would consider bringing um, in-person schooling back to the table. So um, I, I know that, that the health department data that they're receiving is driving a lot of those conversations. Um, in some districts, I think it's also just uh, based on whatever the necessity is that, um, you know, district constraints, whether it be not being able to provide the technology in certain areas, um, so that people are making uh, concessions to do things remotely as a result of that. 
Um, so it's a lot of it is just based on needs of the district. Um, from what I've seen, Ann Arbor is offering um, fully online to start the year, but it's also offering a couple of other options, including a fully virtual option for the entire year, and then um, a phased in hybrid plan, which I think you're seeing in a lot of districts as well, where they kind of slowly phase in cohorts of school of, of students that go um, a couple of days a week with the eventual idea of going back um, and transitioning to in-person once the infection rates are lower. But those are some of the things that um, I don't think are quite as clear as is what those numbers would need to be at and how they would need to decrease before we get back to everybody being in person. Another thing, Julie, that you do is cover COVID from a public health perspective. And with your knowledge, too, of how school districts work and administrators and the politics of education, what about the health factors and the fact that I'm looking at this and saying, geez, these districts are getting a lot of leeway to make decisions when there seems to be some kind of irrefutable facts about COVID itself that, you know, and how it spreads and, and so forth. So, I look at that and I go, why is so much discretion given at a local level when we know so much about how this disease spreads? Because I think the the issue here is, is that they're really, I've talked to doctors about this a lot, including doctors who have school-aged children. And I think that most experts would readily concede that it is really hard, it, there's really not a clear path here. So I think that that's the big problem. There is no question there is some health risk in reopening schools. I mean, there just is. Kids are not immune, despite what the president says. Um, teachers, older people are certainly at risk. Um, you know, the, the, especially the younger kids may not be risk at, you know, it could be, you know, like a chicken pox or measles outbreak where they don't get that sick. Um, but certainly the adults are pretty much at risk. So there, there's no question that there's considerable health risks here. That said... I think that, um, you, you know, the experts realize there's a great value to be had in school. And it's not just about serving, letting parents go back to work, that there are a lot of societal benefits to in-person instruction, and um, they don't discount that. So I think that it's hard for them to say that there is a, that there's a clear path of what must be done. I will say that probably the overwhelming sentiment that I've heard is that that probably the the older the kid, the more value there probably is to in-person instruction. So the less harm of not going in person and the more risk of COVID. That if we're going to prioritize any group in terms of in-person instruction, it should actually be the youngest kids and not the college kids. Right. One thing you mentioned um is the teachers and how they feel. I know there was a rally uh, this week in the past week at the Capitol with teachers. Uh, the main point of view they had was they're the ones who are putting their lives at risk. Um, as we know, most young people who, who get this, many are asymptomatic or, or don't suffer great health effects from it, but it's the people who have it who pass it on to people who have compromised conditions or are older. And the main point of view of the teachers who are rallying is is that they need to be protected. Uh, Marty, you've done it. You did a really great piece a few days ago going to Jackson, uh, which has reopened schools. And you went into the school and you talked to teachers, you talked to um, the principal, 
And you know, what's the perspective on the ground there? Uh, what were they telling you? And, and how are they, they're there, they're, they're educating. And there were some really positive comments that came out of the experience of reopening. So why don't you walk us through that? Yeah, I think the, the early returns were really positive, as you might expect in the early stages of, of um, seeing students again for the first time in, in several months. And I, I think that kind of played into it. I think there is, um, from speaking with some teachers and, and the principal there, a spirit of cooperation, at least in these early stages, that they want to try to do this right so that they can keep um, in-person classes or, or a hybrid model, which is what Jackson uh, Public Schools started the year with. Um, they want to be able to prove that that can continue and then eventually get to that stage where they can can have in-person classes. So I think from what I'm, I was told um, at Hunt Elementary in Jackson, I think there was a, a sense that uh, teachers and um, students want this to be done right. And I think um, maybe at an elementary level, I think there might be a little bit of, um, you might be able to do some of that education early on with students to kind of tell them about what those practices are, about wearing, make sure they're, making sure that they're wearing masks, uh, social distancing and, and things like that. So um, it was pretty encouraging that there was, there seemed to be um, optimism there. Seeing it in action, did it seem cumbersome? I mean, like a heavy lift for the staff there. I mean, cleaning and making sure that, you know, I even saw the photos, everything's six feet apart. Even the kids coming off the buses were six feet apart. And they have, but they have parents or, I mean, excuse me, they have adults or staff there. In all the pictures, you can see a staff member kind of like monitoring and they have these six feet long sticks. And Will this become the new norm? Will we all get used to that? It'll just become, we'll come accustomed to it, or is this going to be hard to maintain? I think it's going to be very difficult to maintain. Um, you know, right now, uh, level of students inside these buildings is pretty low. Um, I think the real test comes when you're trying to see when you're going to go back into the classroom uh, 100%. And I think that's where you're going to see the building constraints. You're not going to be able to have 15 and uh, fewer students in the classroom, which is what I think you're going to see at a lot of schools that start with the hybrid model. Um, it's going to really um, test, I think, schools when uh, that possibility comes and the question comes of when do we return to full in-person school. So I had lunch this past weekend with my sister. She's got a uh, pair of 15-year-old twins and Julie, I'm just going to throw this out here. This is a real general. Her, she had a general question. I think it's, it seemed rhetorical, but probably not. But she's like, how is my kid going to learn algebra two virtually? You know, because <laughs> she's like, I don't remember algebra two. <laughs> so I just practically speaking, how do, and they, and the Jackson school, I noted in, in Marty's story said, we're going to return to assessments this year. I mean, Spring was kind of like a pass. It was like a pass fail or, you, you know, everybody got credit for showing up and, and during the COVID era. But what happens with education and teaching and assessments and, and, and all of that? I mean, what, what are, how are schools going to handle that? And how is that going to disrupt, you know, the, the, the educational paradigm as we once knew it? I mean, I think that is the one of the huge, huge concerns and why, why there is such a struggle over this decision, right? And I mean, one thing that's interesting to me is there has been sort of a flip in the rhetoric. Um, you know, you actually had people like Betsy DeVos 
and conservatives really championing online education um, before the COVID era and the um, sort of the educational establishment like the MEA totally saying how, how in-person instruction was um, really the, the best way to go. And now it's sort of flipped where DeVos is saying, you know, online isn't good enough. And, you know, the educational establishment probably acknowledging that it is not, it definitely is inferior, but it's what we're going to have to do. So, but I think that there's huge, huge, huge concern about what this will mean in terms of, of academics. Um, you know, there, I don't, I don't know, really know that anybody is making the case that we can make this the same quality of experience that in-person education was providing and we're gonna get the same kind of results. Um, I think that there's widespread acknowledgement that there's a big trade-off if you're not having, um, if you're not having in-person instruction. But the trade-off, but you know, there's a big trade-off on the other side too, which are the health issues. Yeah, the I'm just wondering if the, the established way that we measured kids and the way that all the way up to the ACT and SET, which I know you know, the college thinking about that's changing a little bit too, but um, the grade point based systems of assessing kids and ABCs and all that, does, does that all have to be reimagined in this era? Are, are they going to use different, you know, metrics or standards to try to, to gauge actual learning and progress It's for students? Yeah, I don't know what they're, I mean, it's hard to imagine. There's, there's no question that one of the big issues here is that even before COVID, the biggest challenge that educators faced was the sort of achievement gap between low-income kids and middle-class and affluent kids. And there's, it's hard to get around the fact that it, that is just going to be accelerated with online learning. Um, I mean, if you're surrounded by um, parents who are who are better equipped to um, help their kids, um, or and who live in in homes that are more conducive to that, um, you know, that's going to be a big boost versus kids who live in homes where the parents are, you know, probably struggling a lot more to help their, their children um, academically. And, you know, the homes may be smaller um, and the kids may have more responsibilities in terms of taking care of younger siblings and stuff. I mean, it's just hard to, hard to see how especially struggling students are going to, um, how that's not going to make things worse. And then there's the whole question of special ed. I mean, I have a number of people, I know a number of people have kids who are special needs and they're just devastated about the fact of not having in-person school. Well, and then Julie, you add in the technological aspect of this, of the ability to, for people to have broadband to begin with. Right. And that gap accelerates to a level that it's almost impossible to play catch up. Well, I do think that a lot of kids, a lot of school districts were handing out Chromebooks and making sure that kids had broadband access. And honestly, the areas where broadband access is not readily available are in northern rural areas. And those schools probably are in a much better situation to open because in northern Michigan, the case levels are a lot lower and it's just going to be easier. But there's no question that, you know, there's just lots of, of barriers that that it is not going to be a level playing field at all to have online learning. 
Um, it just isn't. And it's going to be a problem. And I don't know that they know how they're going to do assessments yet. There's a whole body of, of educational science, it's social science, on the effects of poverty on, on people. And they're not just performance in education, but in, you know, ability to uh, move forward generationally and, you know, to get a foothold. And, you know, one of the things that's already come out in the COVID era, not related to education, just in general, is that poorer people tend to be what we call essential workers. And we, you know, the white collar people and professionals who've been working from home talk about struggling with, you know, I've got three kids at home. Um, they walk through the camera, they, you know, they, they need help during the day, I get distracted. But in a lot of impoverished homes, the parents aren't even there. Uh, they're the ones driving the buses or working in retail or fast food restaurants and things of that nature. So I know we can't really unpack all that and solve that in this conversation, but just saying when you get in communities that are, you know, under uh, served, both economically, or educationally, that there's already some stress in the educational system or in, in the social fabric. It just seems like you're you're asking for a miracle to happen here for virtual education to be effective. You know, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think that if you were just doing what's best for kids, particularly elementary kids, you most areas you could make a strong case that particularly in elementary, you should have in-person education. But the problem is, is that those aren't the only people in the building. I will tell you that the health issues are really involved the staff. You know, I don't know that, um, and you can't discount that. And I will tell you, this is a personal issue to me. I have one of my youngest sister is a elementary school teacher. She also has a serious heart condition. Um, she would certainly be at high risk if she got COVID. You know, she fits the profile of people who get it and die or have a really hard time. So I don't discount the fears of staff about being put in, you know, in a situation where their exposure would be high. So you have just pointed to what I think is the fundamental dichotomy of the uh, coronavirus uh, era in America which is, it's coming down to two factors. One, politically, the division between those who feel like, you know, I hate to say it, but it's almost like society has to move forward and you know, Darwinism will take its toll and people get sick and die, but most young people don't and we can't you know, stop the world and stop our economy and stop schools, we gotta move forward. You know, versus those who have very real, uh, who are suffering from this and who are suffering and dying from this. And you know, that now, as schools get ready to open, how, it was unavoidable that this was going to come to the school level. And um, the adults and the older people who are the most vulnerable are the ones who are being asked to educate these kids and get results. And it, it you know, last week, the Republicans in the state legislature in Michigan pushed forward some bills. And one of them was, if you don't have 75% attendance in your school, you don't get state aid for education. And that seems pretty heavy handed. I'm sure that won't make it past Whitmer's desk, but uh, you know, it's come down to that. It's like, who is, you know, who gets to decide the risk level that people have to take? Because in our day-to-day -day life, if I don't want to go down to the grocery store because I don't feel comfortable, I don't have to, I can get food delivered to my house. Mm -hmm. And so 
some school districts are allowing education to be delivered to the house, but this political climate is like, you know, you will comply. <laughs> you know, we are going to move forward. And, you know, Marty, did you get any sense of that when you were in Jackson talking to teachers and educators um, that they, that they feel a sense of personal risk um, or concern that they're going to be able to stay safe for the school year? I think school districts have done generally a pretty good job of providing um, parents, teachers, staff, and students with options in this. And I think uh, with the virtual component that a lot of school districts are doing, a lot of teachers who might uh, be at risk are taking the option to teach virtually rather than potentially to expose themselves um, to the virus in person. So uh, to the credit of school districts, I think that they are trying to do everything they can to make sure that those with risk who have, are at risk and who might have concerns, whether it be parents or students who might have uh, pre-existing condition. Um, they're making options so that they can go a different route. And, and um, that's usually virtual at this point. So um, I think at Jackson, I think there was generally a sense that the people were there, wanted to be there. And, and it was a very genuine, um, you know, appreciation for being back in the classroom. Um, so I think you're going to see that where um, the people who are there in the earlier stages, I think, have been identified as people who don't have those concerns as much as, as um, maybe some people who might be at risk. And Julie, back to the public health aspect of this, what is the latest on the vaccine? And it, is that even something that an administrator for a school can look hopefully towards by the end of the school year and say, you know, maybe we just got to struggle through the fall and winter and maybe there's some uh, some hope on the horizon. I mean, the doctors that I talked to have all expressed a lot of optimism that there will be a vaccine that comes out this winter. I think what they don't know is necessarily um, the distribution plan of, I mean, it's one thing to have um, a vaccine that would come out, say, at the very end of the year and maybe, you know, you've, you've probably have read stories about how they're actually manufacturing these vaccines already in hopes that if it's approved, it would, they would bang, have, a, you know, millions of, of doses ready, but there's still, it would take months to get vaccinations out to all parts of the country. I don't know, you know, I don't know how much of a vaccine is going to factor in this school year, possibly in the spring, but you know, I, I, you know, I, I, if it's, you know, not till March or April that people are really getting vaccinated, it's hard to know. But I do think that from, I will say the doctors, I haven't talked to any doctors who have said, I don't think a vaccine is going to happen or, you know, I'm skeptical about this. I think that they are pretty optimistic about, and part of it is because there's so many vaccines in development, they figure one of those is going to work. Yeah. Uh, and I imagine high risk people or people who are put in positions where they have contact with lots of people, like say a teacher uh, might be prioritized in that. So I want to ask you another question, Marty, that last week it was pretty high profile, but a school district opened in Indiana. First hour, first day, 
kid has <laughs> kid has COVID, you know, and they go into quarantine, they go and, you know, they lock it down. And, um, you know, the, the, the principal of school or the school administrator, uh, uh, superintendent said, well, we knew it probably was going to happen. And I just didn't know it was going to be the first hour of the first day. You know, what are the protocols going to be for schools? You say Jackson, like, you know, God forbid, but today at Hunt Elementary, you know, they have a confirmed case. Do they shut everything down or they just kind of try to seal that off and move forward? So that is one of the things that I think is still very unclear at this point, other than school districts are relying heavily on um, the council of their local health departments to make these decisions. Um, all the ones that I've spoken to are saying that's um, a case by case basis, depending on the scenario who might have been infected, if they um, are able to do contact tracing and things like that. Those uh, are factors in, in what type of protocols you put in place, whether it be to shut down a classroom or an entire school. Uh, but that is one of the things that I think school districts have kind of held off on um, in, in submitting some of these plans because they don't really have they don't have the ability to make those types of informed decisions like the health department does. So the health departments are going to be a enormous factor and how these um, these situations are carried out, I think it really will come down to school districts and, and getting on top of this and making sure that the health departments have this information as quickly as possible. And working in concert with each other is, is gonna be critical to make sure that there aren't um, large spreading events within schools. Any advice for parents? <laughs> I would, I think, I would say, you know, personally, I think that, it seems like school districts are a lot more confident with their online options to start the year that they're going to be able to assess the learning. Whereas last year, it was just kind of trying to get by for a couple of months to, to close out the school year. So um, if, if parents are concerned, the online option appears to be there for, for nearly all of them, um, even within, within school districts that are starting the year with an in-person um, option. So uh, it never hurts to have more information. So I, I would suggest that anybody who's apprehensive about sending their kids back to school, at least start with an option that um, they can make changes to if the, if the health conditions change in their county. Uh, but starting the year uh, virtually, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing at this stage. Yeah. And on that question to either of you, like as a parent, one of my problems with the first part of this and marty you sort of addressed this a little bit you said that early on with the virtual thing they were just trying to get through and while i don't expect schools to have a fully fleshed out virtual plan why was that never a conversation of if we have a giant snowstorm or like anything else that could interrupt teaching here's what we could do as opposed to going wow there's there's an internet that's cool what's this camera thing do you know which was what our experience was and i was shocked not that they didn't have fully fleshed cu curriculum, but they had no idea what to do. Because I think, that, but Eric, to be fair, I think that part of the issue was, is that there is such unevenness. If, every, if you know that every kid doesn't have internet at home and you know that every kid doesn't have a computer at home, I mean, I think that that was a barrier right there of saying, 
you know, even if we have a big snowstorm, we're probably going to be pretty limited in what we can do because. Sure. But let me let me get let, Julie, let me give you a real an actual example of, of what happened in my home. So we were doing this for hour long, three months or whatever. My daughter, my eight year old daughter saw her teacher one time on video. That that doesn't make any sense. To, I hear you about the technology, yeah. and I am really concerned about the digital divide between people who have access to Chromebooks and know how to use them, and people who don't. Yeah, no, I mean, there's no question that I think you know, at the end of the year, you know, there were lots of people who just sort of threw in the towel and said, "It's a," you know, the 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 end of that school year was a wash. I mean, it was a. <laughs> I don't know of anyone who said, "I feel like we." things are going fine or that, you know, we're offering the same quality of education or that it was nothing more than a show. I mean, it was just, yeah, I just, I was wondering just with your combined expertise, was there, was there a a district in Michigan who sort of had thought through this and executed on a level that was better? Probably the only, honestly, I mean, the ones who had the advantage were the online schools, right? I mean, there are online programs and they, what they're doing, but outside of that, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I had, I, I don't have kids in school anymore, um, but I do have lots of Facebook friends and I wasn't hearing anything from anybody saying, well, our school district has it together. Right. I think it's it, like Julie said, it's definitely the, the schools that have adapted more to using technology and like online schooling. And, and with those plans that are more fleshed out, those are the ones that were able to better react to it. And I think the other part of it is um, the ones that were able to quickly respond and get um, kids the technology that they need, whether it's the Chromebooks or like the hotspots availability. Like I think parents had the same thing. It's like my kid just like drifted off and they they just went pass fail. And the struggle, John, right? No matter what they've done in the last 90 days during the summertime, the kids remember how it ended. They're not coming into yeah. this thinking that virtual learning is awesome. They're coming into it thinking it's awful. And I don't need to pay attention right. and it doesn't count and, and, and. Right. I, right. I just uh, did a piece that uh, we should be publishing in the near future where I talked to a couple dozen students about it and all every single one of them hates virtual learning. So I think that's, that is a consensus among students is that they don't like virtual learning at all. And I would uh, remind people that we do have a newsletter now that's going to keep you informed on everything from statewide policy issues down to the decisions that lo- that parents are making in your communities and around the state for how to navigate these really, really uncertain times. Uh, I, I think we're in a situation, and this isn't just education, where we're learning something every day about ourselves, about our society, our neighbors, how we get through day-to-day life with COVID. And so uh, go to Live. Any education story you'll see um, prompts to sign up for this newsletter, Michigan Schools Education in the COVID Era. You'll see great work by people like Marty and Julie and our other reporters who are covering this, both from the political angle, but uh, the local school angle, but down to the personal level for families as well. So I want to thank you guys for joining us today. There's a real onion to unpeel here, and I think we could probably talk for another whole hour on this, but um, it's fascinating, but uh, it really is uh, a it's a clear and present problem for parents in every household around the state. So hopefully we'll get through it together. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. And there they go. A big thanks to, of course, John Heiner for being my co-host and Julie Mack and Marty Slochter. 
And if you like the podcast, as always, you can do a couple things for us. One, you can like it on Apple iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And if it's on Spotify, we'd love it if you would put it in a playlist so that people can find it. And finally, if you like the episode, share it with a friend. As always, I am Eric Hulkrin. That is John Heiner. And this is Behind the Headlines.